Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Gary Tyson grew up in Oklahoma, the oldest of seven children. Growing up during the Great Depression, times were tough. His father drank and was in and out of prison. In the mid-50s, the family moved to Casa Grande, Arizona. Gary had an IQ of 140, which was high, considering the average IQ is 100. This put Gary in the top 1% of the population, but it wasn't enough to keep him in school. Gary dropped out in grade 10. By the time he was 20, he was serving time for armed robbery. In a report by Beverly Roth, it stated his sister Martha paid him a visit every week at the jail. On one of her visits, she brought along her friend Dorothy Stanford, who was shy and a little naive. Dorothy was smitten with Gary. He was intelligent, tall and good-looking. A year later when Gary was paroled, he proposed to Dorothy. They married, and soon, their first son, Donald, was born. Then came along Ricky and Raymond. Gary loved his family and tried to get a regular job, but it just wasn't in him. He liked the danger of being a criminal. Three and a half years into their marriage, Gary went on a two-week crime spree and stole guns from a National Guard armory. He was caught and put in jail. While waiting for his trial, he escaped. Broken desperate, he robbed a grocery store. He didn't make it far before he was caught and thrown back in jail. He was found guilty and sentenced to 25 to 30 years in prison. But that didn't deter Dorothy, his faithful wife. She raised their sons with the belief that their father had been wrongly convicted. Every Sunday, she took their three young sons to visit their father. She wrote numerous letters to the parole board, declaring hardship and begging for Gary to be released. Perhaps her ploy worked. Gary was released on parole after serving only five years. Gary's wife was happy to have him home, and his sons idolized him. He was bigger than life, intelligent and confident, a commanding presence of five foot ten and over two hundred pounds. It wasn't long before Gary went back to a life of crime. Ten months after being paroled, he was arrested for passing a bad check. Then, while he was in jail, a deal he had been working on went bad. He had been planning to smuggle farm equipment across the border. But when he got greedy, his partners in crime 
ratted him out to the police. His parole was revoked, and he went back to prison. On September 18, 1967, at his trial, Gary was handed a sentence of 20 years to run concurrently with the remaining time he had to serve for his first sentence. But Gary had a plan. The Arizona Republic reported that in the courtroom after the sentence was read, prison guard Jim Steiner put handcuffs on Gary and the two climbed into a prison truck for the five-minute drive back to the prison. Somehow, Gary managed to overpower him and take hold of his 38 caliber gun. He forced him to drive down a side road where they stopped. Standing under a tree, Gary shot the prison guard three times in the chest. Jim fell face down and died on the spot. Gary drove the prison truck to the local dump and spotted a couple who were target shooting. He robbed them of their 22 caliber pistol and left walking down the road. They in turn phoned the prison to report him. That's when the prison officials knew something was wrong and phoned the courthouse and discovered the prison guard and the inmate were missing. Over the next few hours, Gary didn't make it far on foot. He'd only made it a mile when he spotted a pickup truck in a field. Now you think he would have floored it to another state, but Gary had a fondness for the Casa Grande area and the people he knew there, including his relatives and fellow criminals. The next morning, Cher's deputies spotted the truck. Dogs were brought in to track Gary's scent. but lost it in the desert. Meanwhile, Gary had found his next victim. He watched a mother sending her children off to school. Once they were gone, he snuck in the house, flashed his gun, and ordered her to make him breakfast. Once he was done eating, he grabbed the keys to her station wagon. She ran to the neighbors and phoned police. They spotted the station wagon. Gary tried to evade them by pulling into a driveway, slamming the car in park, and took off running into the backyard. But it was surrounded by a high cement fence, and he had nowhere to run. When police surrounded him, he fired shots, and they returned fire, before subduing him and taking him into custody. Gary pled innocent by reason of insanity. In March 1968, at his trial, his defense lawyer did not call one witness. It took the jury less than eight hours to reach a verdict. Guilty. For the kidnapping, Gary was sentenced to life in prison without parole and life in prison for the murder. Gary settled into prison life, and by most was considered to be an ideal prisoner. But Gary lived for the thrill of being a dangerous felon. The Tucson Daily Citizen reported 
that he, along with two other inmates, were assigned to work in the office. Somehow, Gary managed to smuggle in a 9mm gun and surprise the guards. The inmates had the guards remove their clothes, then locked them in a supply closet. The inmates changed into the guards' uniforms and went out to sweep the prison yard as usual. They even shone their flashlights back and forth so they wouldn't raise suspicion. Then one of them flashed the watchtower, a signal for the guard in the tower to lower the yard keys down to them. The guard did so, but noticed the guard on the ground didn't look up at him, which made him suspicious. Just then, one of the guards managed to break out and sounded the alarm. The prison was searched and the three inmates were discovered hiding in the laundry room. Gary never made it out of the prison walls, but he remained a commanding presence within them. Inside, the prison inmates formed groups, and the one in charge of all the groups was Gary. He had the ability to keep things in order and keep the inmates calm. In 1976, the inmates went on strike, but Gary did not. Instead, he sided with the warden and wrote articles to the press defending him. This would go on to earn Gary privileges in the future. In September 1977, a federal judge ruled that Arizona's prisons were overcrowded and that they either needed to build more prisons or come up with a plan to reduce the number of inmates. The Arizona Central reported that Warden Harold Cardwell decided to convert a woman's prison across the street to house inmates that didn't require a high level of security. And the warden was in charge of deciding who those inmates would be. It turned out that Gary was a good cook, and even though he was dangerous, his cooking skills, combined with his good behavior, earned him a transfer. Another prisoner who joined him was Randy Greenwalt. He too had supported the warden during the strike. Randy was convicted of murdering a truck driver while he slept. He crept up to the truck, marked the window with an X where the driver's head was laying, then stood back, raised his gun, and fired. The move to the prison across the street meant Gary could have day-long visits with his family, and they were permitted to bring picnic baskets or boxes of books as Gary liked to read. The reception area where visitors arrived was open to the public, and visitors weren't searched unless they entered the visitation area. It didn't take long for Gary to appreciate the relaxed security and devise an escape plan. He had his brother Joe purchase a Lincoln, then contacted Robert Adams, an inmate he'd befriended in prison who was now out. Robert stashed the Lincoln at his place. He also helped pass messages between Gary and his wife Dorothy. On July 30th, 1978, Gary's three sons pulled up to the visitor lot at the prison 
and park their green Ford. First, 18-year-old Raymond walked in with sandwiches and pop. He was searched before going through to the visitation room where he joined his father. After about 20 minutes, Gary and Raymond entered the reception area, which wasn't unusual as that's where the washrooms were located. Just then, his other two sons, 19-year-old Ricky and 21-year-old Donald, entered carrying a box. But this time, the box didn't contain books. Hidden inside was a sawed-off shotgun. Ricky grabbed it and shoved the barrel into the opening in the booth and pointed it at the corrections officers. As they had planned, Randy was also in the booth where he worked as a clerk. Donald passed a handgun to Randy. The crew rounded up the guards and visitors and corralled them into a closet and locked it. Gary and Randy changed into clothes that had been brought for them, and the five fled in the green Ford. They drove to a nearby hospital where the Lincoln had been left for them and sped off. Within 10 minutes, the guards were able to break out of the closet and reported the escape. The Lincoln, full of fugitives, headed towards Juma when a tire went flat. They swapped it out with a spare tire and continued on heading to Quartzsite. Court records indicated they traveled the back roads to avoid detection, but it was hard on the car and another tire blew. Without another spare, they needed a new vehicle. Pulled over on the side of the road, the sun faded and the sky turned dark. Raymond stood by the Lincoln while the other four armed themselves and hid. Hours later, car passed by but did not stop. Then, in the middle of the night, an orange Mazda driven by John Lyons with his wife, two-year-old son, and 15-year-old niece approached. John was a U.S. Marine and stopped to help. While Raymond was showing him the flat tire, his brothers, father and Randy, stepped out with guns. They forced the Lyons family into the back seat of the Lincoln. Raymond and Donald drove the Lincoln, limping on a flat tire, a few miles off the highway, down a dirt road, and into the desert. There, the Tysons emptied their contents out of the Lincoln's trunk and into the Mazda. Then they drove the Lincoln further into the desert. Once stopped, Gary emptied a bullet into the Lincoln's radiator to disable the car. The Lyons family were ordered out and told to stand in front where they were lit up by his headlights. John begged for their lives, saying, don't kill me, to which Gary replied that he was thinking about it. John pleaded, give us some water, just leave us out here and you all go home. Gary ordered his three sons to go back to the Mazda and retrieve some water. 
When the boys reached the Mazda, they heard shots ring out. All four members of the Lyons family were executed. The fugitives drove the Mazda north. They stopped in Wendon and bought silver spray paint to change the car's color. Randy knew a woman named Kathy Emmentrout in Flagstaff, so they headed there. She bought them a truck and ammunition. On August 6th, an employee with the Game and Fish discovered the Lincoln and the bodies of the Lyons family. Police canvassed all the stores, gas stations, and restaurants in the area. They got a break when they discovered the Tyson boys had bought that silver paint. Now they knew they were traveling in an orange Mazda that had likely been painted silver. The fugitives headed towards Clovis in New Mexico. Gary had arranged for a plane to pick them up and fly them to Mexico. But authorities had interviewed the inmates and got wind of their plan. When Gary and his crew showed up at the airport, they spotted police first and fled. They headed towards Colorado. The Mazda was too small for the five big men, and they decided they needed a larger vehicle. They spotted a newlywed couple, James and Marjean Judge, driving a van. They were traveling from Texas to Denver to see the Dallas Cowboys play football. The couple were murdered and the fugitives drove back to Casa Grande in Arizona. Now here's where an interesting twist occurred. There was an attempted break-in at the Border Patrol station in Gilabend, two hours north of the Mexican border. It was reported a silver sports car had been spotted near the scene. Gary had robbed an armory before, so police guessed it was likely Gary and his crew in the silver-painted Mazda. It was now August 11th, 12 days since their escape from prison. At 2.45 a.m., Donald was driving the van when they approached a roadblock. Officers saw it coming, but weren't concerned because they were looking for a Mazda. They were taken off guard when shots rang out from the van. Donald floored the gas pedal, reaching almost 95 miles an hour. The police returned fire. Donald was hit in the head. The van slid off the road and stopped. The police were in hot pursuit. When they stopped, they saw Gary open the side door of the van and yell out, It's everyone for himself, as he ran off into the dark night. His sons and Randy followed. Officers could see Donald was dead, but as a precaution, held a gun on him while they searched his pockets for identification. And that's when they discovered they had captured a Tyson. Inside the van, they saw an arsenal of six pistols, a rifle, four shotguns, and over 100 rounds of ammunition. A helicopter was brought in and located Ricky, Raymond, and Randy. Officers had no idea 
if Gary was armed. An intensive search lasted two days, with men on foot and horseback. Four by four vehicles and a helicopter joined the search. But Gary had managed to escape. A week later, and a mile from the crash site, a worker at a plant smelled something odd and discovered Gary's body under a bush. It appeared the mastermind had died a slow and painful death. Due to decomposition, the medical examiner wasn't able to determine the exact time of death or the cause of death, but is thought that he died from exposure and lack of water within the first couple of days. In an ironic twist of fate, where Gary's body was found was only 150 feet from a water fountain. Those that assisted in their prison escape were prosecuted. Gary's wife, Dorothy, received a two-and-a-half-year sentence. His brother, Joe, received four years. And his friend, Robert, who supplied the Lincoln, received three years. Gary's son, Ricky and Raymond, and his friend, Randy, were convicted of 92 felonies. Ricky and Raymond were sentenced to death. However, their sentences were later set aside, and they were resentenced to life. Randy was sentenced to death and executed in 1997. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Christian Gerhardt's Writer. Some are born into royalty with a silver spoon. Others take a tarnished spoon and polish it with a side order of murder. Chris's fantasy landed him in a world amongst the elite where he pretended to be a Rockefeller. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>